Hello, and welcome to Oppo Research, the podcast about the sins and scandals of your least favorite politicians, brought to you by Discourse Blog. I'm your host, Jack Merkinson, and this week's guest was literally the first person on our list when we started talking about who we wanted to be on this podcast. It is none other than our eternal comrade, former Discourse Blog and Splinter staffer, current writer and researcher at More Perfect Union, and my favorite walking political encyclopedia, the one and only Paul Blessed. Paul, hello. Hey, thank you for having me. You have chosen someone who I would say is a sort of prototype for the kind of absolutely crazy monsters that roam the land today. Do you want to talk about who you picked and why you picked this person? So I chose Pat McCrory, who is a former governor of North Carolina. He was the governor of North Carolina when I moved here eight years ago. He played a huge role in just sort of dragging North Carolina so much further to the right. That has just continued over the past decade. But it's also really funny how his political career ended. I picked him because he is one of the few examples I can think of where a powerful politician really got their comeuppance when it comes to like electoral backlash he was just a huge piece of shit the entire time that he was in office and uh he lost in a in a year where no republican should have should have lost anywhere i mean he was just a a really bad guy who is now just completely obsolete so it's kind of a fun one too because he's just like his he doesn't really have much of a political career anymore there are no happy endings in current American politics, really, but that's a sort of a happy ending. It's a nice note of optimism. I know about Pat McCrory probably for the same reason that most of our listeners know about him, which is the bathroom bill in North Carolina, which we will obviously get to. I am excited to find out from you how he got to the position of being the governor who then fucked himself over by hating on trans people five to 10 years before it was really popular <laughs> to hate on trans people in this right. country. Yeah. Let's just dive right into it. Pat McCrory, what was his deal as a kid? Where did he go to school? And was there anything in those early years that sort of marked him out as someone who would go on to do such horrible shit? He was born in Ohio, um, and then when he was a kid, he moved to North Carolina, and then he went to Catawba College, which is out west. And I mean, this is sort of a, a common theme among the state's Republican political leaders, but he really got his start as sort of like this reactionary college student. The state house speaker, Tim Moore, it was sort of the same thing. There was like clips of him like railing against gay marriage in like 1990 when he was the president of like the college Republicans at UNC. It really sort of speaks to where North Carolina was heading at the time. I mean, North Carolina Democrats ran the state for like more than a century. Um, going back to the immediate aftermath of Reconstruction and sort of the reaction that happened at, at that time. And going through the 60s and 70s, that's when this like reactionary turn towards the Republican Party started to build. Jesse Helms was elected to the Senate in the early 70s. That just sort of keeps building until 2010. A classmate of his wrote this in 2014 calling him the only arch conservative serving on the student senate in 1977 and 
his focus had been on trying to get the literary magazine defunded and synchronizing the clocks on campus. Um, that sounds like some really weirdo shit to me. What do you think it is about all of these Republican politicians that they were up to such dorky reactionary nonsense in college? Because I feel like that happens all the time. They're always so weird. I, I think it's just like the most evil and chaotic version of like a theater kid. I mean, I, I really do think <laughs> that like, yeah. they want just the attention from being hated. I mean, like, let's be honest, like going to a, a liberal arts college or even like a state university like UNC, you're meeting a lot of people that lean more liberal and so to get that reaction that you're wanting you just like say the most outrageous shit that you can say and like do stupid yeah. things his school would later bestow upon him an honorary doctorate and he apparently told this story at the ceremony he said it was the summer of 1975 and i was finishing my freshman year here I was having a tough time. I had one D, one B, and all C's for a 2.0 GPA. And then he was working a construction job when his supervisor named Junior talked some sense into him. And he said he had few teeth, didn't read or write, but he knew the job and he knew I was slacking off. And so then he returned to the school and worked hard and finally graduated. Paul, do you believe that story that pat mccrory told in that address uh no absolutely not <laughs> he's like already sort of doing that like folksy like i know real people thing even though he's worked for duke energy and lived in charlotte which is the biggest city in north carolina for like decades mm -hmm. so like joe biden is also really good at this i mean but like it's just sort of a play to people to just be like hey i'm a normal person whoa 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 Joe Biden rides the train, okay? That is normal person behavior, so I don't know what you're talking about. There's corn pop? Yeah, Joe Biden has corn pop. Come on, man. I didn't mean to be doing Joe Biden just then, actually, but I, I guess I slipped into it. Um, so you said he worked for Duke Energy. What was he doing for them? Something wonderful, I'm assuming. He never actually made it clear. I mean, there was a 2014 article that just says that he didn't really talk about it much in his biography. He was working in like management and training and recruitment. In 1988, he got laid off for like three weeks and then got hired back as a training director. When I came here to Charlotte in 1989, I was laid off from Duke Power Company. Most people don't realize that, but I was recruitment manager during the layoffs and not many safe jobs to have during layoffs, and one of them is recruitment manager. But thankfully, they called me back about three to four weeks later and offered me another job, in fact, a promotion. But it kind of woke me up and said, I always want to do what I've dreamed about, and that was run for political office and serve in public service. There's one quote where he talks about how he learned a lot about interviewing skills. I had a pretty large staff. It was almost like being principal of a high school. I had training facilities across the state that I was responsible for. I mean, it seems like a make-work job to me, but I, I don't really know too much about it because he hasn't said too much about it. The year after he got laid off and then hired back, he runs for the Charlotte City Council. And so for most of the time that he's in public office, he's working for Duke Energy at the same time. Which is allowed, I guess, in North Carolina or on the Charlotte City Council. 
I mean, yeah, our mayor in Raleigh right now had ties to a big developer. I think it was like the VP of, of a developer. Um, in a lot of cities around the U.S., local city councils, even state legislators are yeah, not full-time employees. So, like, the ties are, like, very, especially in North Carolina. I mean, we have a state senator who basically writes the farm bill every year who is a farmer and, like, yeah, has lawsuits against or is involved in lawsuits with farm workers and stuff like that. So it's very, very common here for there to be a very clear conflict of interests. Perfect. I just want to read from that story you mentioned from the very beginning, because it's very funny. Uh, This is from the News and Record uh, in 2014. It says, Governor Pat McCrory worked at Duke Energy for 29 years. That's what his resume says, other than a few short sentences about his areas of work. His biography says nothing else about his career. Duke Energy officials aren't talking. Connected state and local leaders aren't saying. Charlotte City Council members aren't sure. And McCrory hasn't said until now. So what I always find completely not suspicious is when somebody has like super duper kept the details of their work for 29 years for the same company way on the down low. And then (laughs) when they finally answer some questions, they're like, oh, I was like a high school principal and I did some recruiting. No, I mean, that just seems beyond the pale to even question that he might be doing something under yes, the table. Yes. What can he even yeah. say? I mean, it's just like I, Duke is one of like the largest employers in North Carolina, like a huge part of the state's economy and the mayor of the biggest city and then later governor of North Carolina was an employee who was paying his bills because of this company. Just to wrap up Pat McCrory, the awful early years He runs for city council in the early 90s, right? And then he becomes the mayor of Charlotte. Is he running? Is he a Republican? And is that significant given the history of North Carolina that you mentioned previously? He is a Republican. At this point, Charlotte did have a Democratic mayor, Harvey Gantt, who ran for Senate against Jesse Helms in 1990. Famously, like one of the most racist Senate campaigns of all time. But still, Charlotte is a very business centric city. It's not out of the realm of possibility for a Republican to get elected the mayor of Charlotte. And McCrory is also very much presents himself as a moderate when he's the mayor of Charlotte, just like supporting business, whatever that means. And then also uh, he campaigned and got the NASCAR Hall of Fame in Charlotte. He helped uh, get funding for the light rail system there, which is still the only city in North Carolina that does have a light rail system. And so he's the mayor of Charlotte for 14 years throughout the entire 2000s and the back half of the 90s. Um, And so Republicans, you know, seeing that the state is shifting in a more conservative direction, but maybe not knowing that they're all the way there yet and not having a lot of really statewide Republicans who have that experience of running other than the people who are in the Senate. You know, he is he is a prime candidate for them to run for governor in 2008. We're going to talk about his run for governor and then his tenure as governor, including some of the many terrible things that you probably know him for. Best of all, right after this, we will be right back. Thank you for listening to Oppo Research brought to you by Discourse Blog. Discourse Blog is a worker-owned leftist politics and culture site We write about uprisings, the woeful democratic establishment, the conservative death cult, bad journalism, bad bosses, workers, 
online nonsense, and naturally, the discourse. For a limited time, Oppo Research listeners can get 20% off an annual subscription to Discourse Blog by going to discourseblog.com research, which gives you access to all our posts. And you can hear new episodes of Oppo Research a week early and without these ads. Once again, that's discourseblog.com research for 20% off annual subscriptions and early access to new episodes of Oppo Research. Thanks for listening. And we are back. Now, Paul, we left off just when Pat McCrory was running for governor in 2008. What was that campaign like? And who was the Pat McCrory that the voters saw in that race? So just to give a little bit of backstory, so I I mentioned earlier that the Democrats ran North Carolina for a very long time. And then in the 2000s, there were a bunch of scandals that sort of decimated whatever control that the party had left. The state house speaker basically bribed a right wing Republican to join the Democratic Party and got indicted. Uh, and then, so the North Carolina Democratic Party, they're losing their grasp on the state after decades of running it. And then there is a labor movement here, but the Democrats have not had any hand in that whatsoever, right? It's a right to work state. So you see the writing on the wall. Um, and so in 2008, the woman running for governor is Bev Perdue. Uh, she was the lieutenant governor of North Carolina under Easley. And McCrory has a very good shot of winning this race. And then somebody named Barack Obama comes along um, and wins North Carolina, just completely upends this whole trend towards the Republicans. Well, Wanda, the room has really cleared out quickly after this concession speech. You know, this was really a night of many firsts. Pat McCrory wanted to be the first Republican uh, elected governor in 16 years. That did not happen. So tonight he gave his first concession speech in his long political career. I want to congratulate the new governor of North Carolina. I made a call to her and I offered my assistance. I was very impressed in meeting her family and her son a week ago at Mallory Creek Barbecue here in Charlotte. So Purdue beats McCrory. And so McCrory had already retired from Duke Energy um, and he goes back into the private sector with plans to run for governor Mm -hmm. again. And so then in 2010, the reaction hits in a very big way. The Republicans decimated the Democrats in the midterm elections everywhere. But in North Carolina, they flipped control of the state house and the state Senate. So they basically run the state now. So Purdue, seeing the writing on the wall, she's not very popular at all. She decides not to run for governor again in 2012. McCrory does run for governor again, and then he runs against her lieutenant governor, uh, Walter Dayton, um, who's just kind of a, a nothing Democrat, and McCrory beats Dayton. And so McCrory becomes governor, and then there is a full Republican control of the state House and the state Senate. So the Republicans have literally 100 years of pent-up anger, and that's what we go into 2013 with. You said earlier that when he was the mayor of Charlotte, Pat McCrory presented himself as this sort of nice, smiling, pro-business moderate, not going to really like set anything on fire or anything like that, just wants NASCAR to come around or whatever. Is that how he governs when he wins this election? That is extremely not how he governs. (laughs) So this is also the important thing about Pat McCrory. He is just a passenger in a lot Mm. of this. He maybe wanted to be the like center right governor, but 
the people who run the state house and the state senate have a lot of power. The state president pro tem has been Phil Berger since 2011. The first state house speaker when McCrory is elected is Tom Tillis, um, who was later elected to the Senate. And so you have these sort of very powerful Republican legislators, and they are really driving the ship on a lot of this stuff. And McCrory is just too much of a coward to sort of like speak up against it, or he completely buys into it. You know, when it comes to some of the social issues stuff that they were pushing, it seems like he was a willing participant in that stuff. But they immediately start cutting unemployment benefits. They repealed the Racial Justice Act, which basically told state courts to take into account racial disparities when they were when they were deciding cases. He signed a voter ID law that has been tied up in the courts ever since. One of the big bills from his first uh, term in office became known as the Motorcycle Abortion Act. There was a motorcycle safety bill, and then the legislature threw in a bunch of anti-abortion legislation. Wait, let's back up a second. Let me get this straight. There was a bill about wear your helmet or whatever when you're riding your motorcycle. And the Republicans in North Carolina were like, that bill is now you can never get an abortion. Yeah, they just threw in a bunch of anti-abortion legislation. That is insane. Last week, Senate leaders tacked a package of abortion changes onto an unrelated bill with no public notice. They approved it 18 hours later. Now it's the House's turn. They tacked abortion changes onto a motorcycle safety bill, again with no public notice. The new version still requires stricter regulations for abortion clinics, but says state health officials should make those rules, quote, while not unduly restricting access. Sponsor Ruth Samuelson didn't define that language today, but she says McCrory has signed off on it. Yeah, I mean, this does happen a lot, maybe not to this extent, but it's a way for the legislature to basically skip out on the whole public opinion part of legislation. I mean, throwing it into a bill as an amendment, there's less of a barrier there to any sort of scrutiny. They passed it in a matter of days, I believe. That was like the crowning thing for him in 2013. And, you know, this is, again, somebody who came in promising not to, like, rock the boat too hard. But he was pretty much immediately, it became clear that the legislature was running things and he was a participant in that. They they were essentially trying to take control of the state in a way that they had not been able to do. And pushing anti-abortion legislation was just pretty much at the top of their list. I mean, even until recently, North Carolina was a buffer for abortion access in the South. Abortion was legal up to 20 weeks. And this past May, there was a Democrat who switched parties. And now it is not legal after 12 weeks, except in some cases. This was just the start of breaking down abortion access in North Carolina and the broader South. And this business mayor of Charlotte was a big part of that. At this time, nationally, I would say we're still in the kind of like Tea Party, Benghazi Gate era of the Republican Party. What's his position within the wider conversation around Republican politics during this time? There were, I think, some people who hoped that, you know, this new Republican governor of North Carolina would be potentially a presidential candidate at some point. I think it would be, it became pretty clear a few years in that he just did not have the chops for that whatsoever, even considering the field of candidates who ran in 2016. 
so in North Carolina, there was just a protest movement that popped up. And this was a lot of the national news that they were getting that was coming out of North Carolina was the Moral Monday protests. Uh, Reverend Barb, who is NAACP leader in North Carolina for, for many years. Um, so Reverend Barber uh, started organizing civil disobedience protests over voter ID, uh, the rollback of unemployment benefits. I mean, obviously, this is all during the time of the Great Recession. And so poor and working class people in North Carolina, disproportionately black people in North Carolina are just getting shit on by the Republican state government that's led by Pat McCrory. And so a lot of the national news that was coming out of North Carolina at the time was definitely not favorable to Pat McCrory. It did not get better (laughs) over the next couple of years. So you alluded to the fact that Pat McCrory's national media profile would not improve as the years went on. And we will absolutely get to that. But before we do, are there any sort of more North Carolina centric uh, scandals that he was involved in? Yes, uh, there are so many, but the big one was a coal ash uh, spill. So Duke Energy has a bunch of coal pits around the state. It, it's basically a way, a place to keep coal ash because it's very highly toxic. And so in the Dan River in North Carolina, there was a pit that spilled tens of thousands of tons of coal ash into the river. The company eventually pled guilty to negligence and had like a $5 million fine. But their friend Pat McCrory, was the governor of North Carolina. And so he slowed the investigation down. There was a bill that he signed that basically tried to roll back the amount of responsibility that Duke Energy had for this and their responsibility foremost to clean it up. Um, So he is going into 2016, which is his re-election year, very not popular in a lot of parts of the state. This was an environmental disaster, really. And so this was like one of the big things that was tied to him and obviously his ties to Duke Energy. There was an investigation into ties between Duke Energy and the McCrory administration, which like the governor worked for them for almost 30 years. And there was a pretty obvious tie right there. He was never accused of any wrongdoing or anything. Um, but, you know, that's besides the point. I mean, it was, again, just speaking to sort of this complete corporate capture of the state, thanks to him. I know that he worked for them for a long time, but as we discussed, there was nothing nefarious going on as he's carefully in detail laid out for the people of the state, right? Well, yeah. Also, he had dinner with the CEO of Duke Energy at the governor's mansion (laughs) while all this was going on. Wait, what? Oh, yeah. he. uh, This was back in 2015. While his environmental department is ostensibly exercising oversight over this company, the CEO of Duke Energy is just at the governor's mansion in Raleigh, just like having some din din with Pat McCrory. I'm sure they just discussed, you know, the good old days and didn't get into any current events. Oh, yeah, definitely not. I, I consider it a Seinfeld story. It's a story about nothing. This is politics at its worst, and it's journalism at its worst. And um, if you're going to tie the hands of governors from building relationships with the largest electric utility in the United States headquartered right here in North Carolina, um, boy, the state of journalism. Some people are concerned about the perception of the timing of it, because it was while there was legal, uh, legislative, and oh, regulatory absolutely. wrangling going on that this... this. Well, there are always going to be issues going on with the largest companies in North Carolina. When do you not meet with these companies? Wow. Now let us finally turn to the big elephant in the room, the so-called bathroom bill, which, as you sort of hinted at earlier on, is really the thing that spells his downfall. 
what is the bathroom bill and what is his connection to it? So after McCrory is not the mayor of Charlotte anymore, he's the governor at this point, Charlotte elects a more progressive mayor named Jennifer Roberts. Um, and so the Charlotte City Council and Roberts passed a non-discrimination ordinance, basically just banning people or businesses that contract with the city from discriminating against people on the basis of gender identity and sexual orientation. One of the big things and why it became known as the bathroom ordinance or whatever is because trans women could use the women's bathroom and trans men can use the men's bathroom. This ordinance gets passed in February 2016, and the legislature immediately loses its shit. You don't have to be an attorney to know that men start using the ladies' room. There's going to be problems. If they do it here in the General Assembly or anywhere else in North Carolina, they're going to be arrested. They threaten to come back in a special session with or without McCrory's support. McCrory eventually does call them back in a special session on March 23rd. And then over the course of a day, they introduce this bill. They have a hearing. This was actually my first day of working in journalism, wow. which is also wow. pretty crazy. I was an all-weekly reporter at the time and just sitting there in the legislature watching teenagers testify that this is going to irreparably harm them. And then these old Republican men just not really not really taking it into account whatsoever it was just like the first time I really realized like, wow, this state is run by bigots. And so they passed this bill. Uh, the bill bans cities and local governments from passing ordinances like the Charlotte one did. It also bans them from increasing the minimum wage. If the Charlotte City Council wanted to increase the minimum wage, they wouldn't be able to do that. So these people, they did a motorcycle slash don't get an abortion bill. And then a few years later, they did a don't be trans slash don't make any money bill. Am I getting that correct? Effectively, yes. It was it was one of those those bills that it drove this conversation about preemption and state governments kind of clamping down on more liberal cities and towns and counties that wanted to offer protections. It basically just was a marriage of the business interests and the religious conservative interests in the state preemptively tackling regulations that would be unfavorable to businesses that were operating in Charlotte by also targeting trans people. They debate heavy air quotes and pass this bill in a day. And so March 23rd, 2016, they pass HB2. Uh, it's a special session. So then they adjourn the session. And they're like, yeah, we did a great job. And so <laughs> then the shit almost immediately hits the fan. There is this huge backlash to what they did. There's so much money that is lost in, in North Carolina. I mean, this is my personal opinion, but I think it's set back this anti-trans backlash that we're seeing by several years. I mean, they really jumped the gun on this one. And it's a few years at least before states start trying this again um, and start trying to target trans people in such an explicit in discriminatory way. And that's thanks to Pat McCrory and Dan Bishop, who is now a congressman from North Carolina and the Republicans in the legislature. So I want to get more into the backlash. But before that, I just want to go back a little bit because McCrory, from what you're saying, when the legislature says, we're going to do this with or without you, had he been equivocal about whether or not he was going to support the legislature's decision to overturn this ordinance, or had he been on board from the beginning and then 
did he sort of enthusiastically take on the mantle once he realized that it was going to happen with or without him? Or was he sort of always fully in line with the legislature, at least publicly? McCrory, for the most part, from what I recall about his response after the Charlotte ordinance passed, was a little cagey about this whole thing. And then the outlet that I worked for at the time, Indie Week in Raleigh, we sued the McCrory administration for emails. Um, and we found an email from Dan Bishop, who is a state representative at the time and is now a U.S. congressman, um, was one of the holdouts on the, the McCarthy speakership. He wrote the bill. And so Bishop was explaining to McCrory what the bill did two days after he signed it. Wait, really? Yeah, 100%. It was basically like him doing an FAQ for the governor of North Carolina who was signing the bill. <laughs> That's how a good political system works. Right, exactly. The other thing is, even if McCrory did veto it, the Republicans were going to override the veto. So McCrory just throws in his lot with the right wingers in the state house, and he signed the bill pretty much immediately. In the immediate aftermath of this, calls to the trans lifeline doubled overnight. This was the most public attack on LGBTQ rights after the Oberfell decision. And so this is explicitly targeting trans people, targeting trans kids who are using public school bathrooms um, and now under even more harassment and bullying from their classmates, you know, sort of emboldened by the state legislature. The backlash is like very swift. Uh, the NCAA pulls out of North Carolina which is a huge deal because uh, UNC and Duke basketball are primary sports followed in North Carolina. There's just immediate backlash from the media, from business, and McCrory was not ready for it. The Republicans were not ready for it. North Carolina is roiled by backlash, boycott threats, and bigotry allegations over its new law called HB2. Dozens of corporations have been critical. Bank of America, headquartered in Charlotte, tweeted, repeal HB2. Governors in New York, Washington, and Vermont banned most official state travel to North Carolina. North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory stands behind the law. I think we're using common sense, pragmatic etiquette to protect the expectation of privacy that all of us um, want. It just sort of speaks to how hastily thought out this whole thing was. And it, it really does. It's the start of this sort of national backlash against trans people. I mean, at least what I mark is the start of it. No, I think um, I think that's totally true. It's really something to reflect on now that unfortunately, North Carolina was ahead of its time, not just sort of like permanently like sent packing in terms of this kind of shit. You know, because yeah. when you think about the contrast between even like corporate America going like, we will not be involved in this, we will pull our money out of North Carolina over the issue of public accommodations rights for trans people to exist in their own gender identity. But yeah. when you compare that to what we've just seen, even in the past few months with like Target removing pride decorations, Starbucks taking pride decorations down, Bud Light tossing over Dylan Mulvaney in like three seconds because people got mad. Even when you right. look at the way that corporate America is now ready to abandon trans and queer people in a matter of seconds because they feel like that's where their interest lies. It's such a clear representation of the way that the discourse and the politics around these issues has 
shifted and clearly obviously not in a good way you know so it does seem like yeah. even though at the time this was a very clear sort of moment of defeat for these conservatives and you know sort of another moment in what felt like this ongoing story about mainstream acceptance of queer people and trans people and emerging consensus that these issues were sort of settled and put to bed. In retrospect, this was really just like delaying what was actually coming down the pike. They were just too early. Right. Yeah. I, I think the big part of this was that the Republicans in the legislature and Pat McCrory were not going to listen to, you know, trans kids and trans people uh, about the impact that this had on them. But it was there was several hundred million dollars that were lost over the course of 2016 just by conventions that were supposed to be in Charlotte and Raleigh canceling. NCAA pulling out. Um, PayPal was going to expand into Charlotte and they decided not to. So this there was a, a whole corporate response to this whole thing. And granted, a lot of these companies helped elect these Republican legislators in the first place by donating to the RSLC which is a nationwide pack for Republican state legislators um, and state legislative candidates. So they are definitely at fault for this as well. But the economic impact helped tank his popularity completely. Did you meet with any transgender people? I before have. you signed that law? Uh, not, but I've met with transgender people in the past, and I've met with them since, and have had very positive conversations. Now, the conversation with a very powerful group called the Human Relations, uh, uh, Human Rights Council, my gosh, they're more powerful than the NRA, and they have millions of dollars, which makes me want to overturn United, because I don't know who their donors are either. In 2016, he's running for re-election. The Democratic Attorney General of North Carolina, Roy Cooper, to this day has never lost a race in North Carolina. He was elected attorney general four times. And so he runs for governor in 2016. Cooper is very much a moderate Democrat, but he's in the mold of these like older Southern lawyers who have run the party for a long time. You know, going back to Jim Hunt and all these governors that a lot of people in North Carolina have fond memories of. And so Cooper runs against McCrory. McCrory, there's also something that we didn't even get into, but this also probably helped tank him. Um, there was like a toll road that they built in north of Charlotte. And so if you look at his election numbers in 2012 in Mecklenburg County, which is where Charlotte is, and then the counties north of Charlotte, he just completely tanked. The swing was so hard to the left and towards Cooper. In November, Cooper runs against him and beats him in a year where Trump beat Hillary Clinton in North Carolina. Richard Burr won re-election. The legislature basically stayed the same. For the most part, the Democrats just kind of got wiped out that year, except they won the governor's race and the attorney general's race. Um, and a big part of that was because Pat McCrory was so goddamn unpopular by the time that he ran for re-election. Uh, and a large part of it was just the job that he did the entire time and also HB2. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy, clearly. There were, I think, more pratfalls to come and we will get into that after this stay with us as they say thank you for listening to oppo research brought to you by discourse blog discourse blog is a worker-owned leftist politics and culture site we write about uprisings, the woeful democratic establishment, the conservative death cult, bad journalism, bad bosses, workers, online nonsense, and naturally the discourse. We also just like getting weird or personal. 
Most of all, we like staying true to ourselves and the things we believe in. And we do it all without any corporate bosses. For a limited time, Oppo Research listeners can get 20% off an annual subscription to Discourse Blog by going to discourseblog.com slash research, which gives you access to all of our posts. And you can hear new episodes of Oppo Research a week early and without these ads. Once again, that's discourseblog.com slash research for 20% off annual subscriptions and early access to new episodes of Oppo Research. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. And we're back. So, Paul, this is, you know, we're in like 2017 or whatever. Pat McCrory is now the nationally reviled, constantly humiliated former governor of North Carolina. What does he do? So just going back slightly. So he loses to Cooper in 2016, but runs this proto like voter fraud did it. I mean, it was a close election, but he basically said that there were stolen votes in Durham County, which is one of the most liberal counties in the state. Uh, There were a bunch of votes that came in at the same time, just in terms of like tabulation. Like literally when I say came in at the same time, like the website was updated at the same time. Um, And so he's basically crying voter fraud. The election is like, held up for a couple of weeks. It becomes very clear after recounts that he's just losing votes. While Roy Cooper has not officially been certified as the winner in the governor's race, his lead has grown since election night. On the other side, allegations of potential voter fraud, and the governor is not backing down. The process is set in place, and I'm going to respect the process and, uh, and to ensure that we've had a fair and accurate election. Um, and so he finally concedes in late November, early December. So he's got like a month left in office. They start calling all these special sessions. There was a special session specifically to weaken the governorship like days before Roy Cooper becomes governor, just basically giving a bunch of power back to the legislature over appointments and stuff like that. And so McCrory just basically says, fuck you to Roy Cooper on his way out the door. McCrory leaves office. There was a so in D.C. when Trump got inaugurated. Somebody yelled at him. And then Dan Bishop, who is the author of HB2, now a congressman, introduced a bill basically making it illegal to intimidate, heavy air quotes, a former governor. (laughs) Wait, are you saying that he got a congressman to write a don't be mean to me, Pat McCrory bill? I don't even know if McCrory even asked for this, but Dan Bishop, who was still a legislator at that point, introduced a bill in the state house. It was an intimidation bill because somebody saw Pat McCrory in D.C. and just yelled at him. I mean, he was like kind of in talks to become a member of the Trump administration that fell through because Trump didn't Mm -hmm. like him. He's just that unlikable of a guy, I guess. (laughs) A month after he leaves office, this happens. And then he becomes a radio host. Oh, God. Was he any good? I think he still is a radio host. I have never listened to his show. There was a video that was posted on Facebook showing a group of people following McCrory during a trip to Washington, D.C. for inaugural weekend, chanting shame and calling him a bigot. And then Bishop said he would introduce legislation to protect officials to make it a crime to threaten, intimidate, or retaliate against the president or former North Carolina official. Oh, my God. And his whole reasoning was that lines were being crossed. And granted, these people were just yelling at him. From what anybody could tell, there was no threat of violence against Pat McCrory. He apparently needed the protection of the state of North Carolina. Also, this happened in D.C., so I don't know what what sort of jurisdiction the North Carolina legislature had over Washington, D.C. Yeah, that's true. He becomes a radio host after all this. 
He toyed with the idea of running for governor again in 2020. His even worse lieutenant governor, Dan Forrest, did instead and lost that race. But then he says he's going to run for Senate in 2022. So Richard Burr, who is a Republican from North Carolina, there were very heavy allegations of insider trading against Richard Burr. And so he said, I'll retire at the end of this year or whatever. And so McCrory jumps into the Senate race, has by far the most statewide name recognition of anybody running for the Senate at that point. And Trump instead endorses a guy named Ted Budd, who is a one-term congressman. And McCrory just got crushed in the primary. He came in second. I don't think it was that close at all. Had he remade himself by this point into like a MAGA Trump acolyte? How was he positioning himself in relation to Trump? He was not, I mean, he wasn't trying to distance himself from Trump in any way. He was running as basically Pat McCrory. And for people who had lived through four years of Pat McCrory, they said, absolutely not. And so like, <laughs> if, if McCrory had won that nomination, there would probably be a Democratic senator from North Carolina right now. I'm looking at the numbers and he got 25% of the vote. That's crazy. Wow. And then Ted Budd got 60%. This is in the Republican primary. Wow. Okay. So, like, he really has nothing left in the tank, from what I'm gathering. But yeah, if he's learned anything over the past six years, that'll be his last run for office. But I guess we'll see. Here's the other thing. He's an advisor for No Labels. <laughs> he is, a, oh, he is now goodness. advising No Labels on their whole thing, which is basically a conspiracy to elect a Republican governor. No Labels is Joe Lieberman's organization that keeps floating the idea of running Joe Manchin for president or running some sort of centrist ticket. And they will not release the names of their donors, which means it's mostly just a right wing front for people like DeSantis and never Trump people. But yeah, Pat McCurry's <laughs> involved in that. 65% of the people are disgusted with both Trump and Biden being our only choices. They're asking, isn't America better than this? Can't we have a better choice? And the momentum, the movement of no labels is uh, on fire right now. People are looking for another. I, I get that people candidate. don't want. And I know, I know. I wait a minute. No, there are a lot of people. There are a lot of no, people. No, they're not. Oh, well, that's a great sign. So he's on the radio. He's doing no labels nonsense. And apparently he is a frequent guest on NBC News, which tells you quite a lot about the mainstream media in this country. That sounds like a pretty soft landing as far as these things go. It's also kind of funny because when HB2 was happening, McCrory had like a very infamous Meet the Press interview because of how bad it was. And it was one of the few times I remember people being like, Chuck Todd did a good job here. And now they have a great laugh every Sunday. Looking back on this crappy ass political career, what do you think is the importance, if any, of Pat McCrory? So I think that the big thing is that he speaks to this. I mean, even before Trump got elected and completely captured the Republican Party to the extent that it pushed all of the people that you could ostensibly call a moderate out of the party. And then all of the people that just went into his corner. Just I think all of this happened in North Carolina leading up to that. And I think McCrory was a big part of that. At best, he's going along with it. At worst, he was a willing and active participant in it. And he signed the bill, even though he didn't know it was in it. He was the avatar for this sort of cowardly Republican politician. And I think at this point, looking forward to what's happened over the past couple of years and this huge anti-trans backlash that we're seeing now, I think that this foreshadowed where all of this was headed. You know, Republicans needed a new bogeyman after Oberfell. 
and they picked trans people and Pat McCrory really helped further that. It maybe shoved that off for a couple of years because a lot of Republicans saw just how fierce the backlash was to what happened in North Carolina. But at this point, it's happening everywhere. It's not just targeting trans people in public life. It's targeting their relationships with their doctors and with their peers by banning trans kids from playing in school sports. And so this all sort of began in terms of making laws that are explicitly targeting trans people. It all sort of started with North Carolina and Pat McCrory. That is his legacy to me. Going along with this reactionary push to the right to the point of being an active participant in it. His legacy is anti-trans bigotry. I really believe that. And what a great legacy that is. Thank you, Pat McCrory, for all that you've done to make this country a much worse place. That is going to wrap things up for us. Paul, thank you so, so much. Where can people find you and your work? Yeah, you can follow More Perfect Union on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Blue Sky, whatever whatever people are using now. I am on Twitter still at PBlessed. Paul Blessed, the one, the only, the greatest. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to Oppo Research, brought to you by Discourse Blog. Our producer is Alex Chan. Our editor and art director is Sam Grosso. And I'm your host, Jack Merkinson. New episodes of Oppo Research drop Fridays, and you can listen to every episode at discourseblog.com, on the Substack app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to listen to new episodes early? If you subscribe to Discourse Blog at discourseblog.com slash subscribe, you can hear new episodes a week before everyone else. Plus, get access to everything on the site. One more time, that's discourseblog.com slash subscribe. Bye!